Good morning. Is Bobby still here? Oh, okay. What do you call 50 guys watching the Super Bowl? Las Vegas Raiders. Bobby in here? <laughs> Where is the best place to watch the Raiders in the Super Bowl? The History Channel. <laughs> Did you hear any of those? Okay. What do you call 50 guys watching the Super Bowl? The Las Vegas Raiders. Where's the best place to watch the Raiders in the Super Bowl? The History Channel. What do Las Vegas Raiders fans do after they win the Super Bowl? They turn off their Xboxes. Xboxes. <laughs> That's for you, Bobby. <laughs> Doesn't go for the Seahawks. We're not talking about the Seahawks. <laughs> well, before I have you stand, I wanted to, and you know, I want to preface our our. Sunday gatherings more often with this. Uh, we know and, and worship the Lord. That's why we're here, to get in his word, worship him in the word, and then uh, praying for each other and fellowship together. That's why we're here. And you, maybe you're new, maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. We're also here. You're not here by, any, by an accident. But because you're here, we want you to know that, that our desire is that you would know the Lord. And if you don't know him, the things that we're doing are because we do. And for you to experience, you might have questions about the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's how God saves our souls from sin, death, and hell. It's through the gospel, the good news, which necessitates repentance on your part, receiving Christ, forgiveness of your sin, and being in relationship with God. That Jesus uh, gave the picture, it's like being born all over again. It's that miraculous, it's that true, it's that real. So if you haven't come to that place, then we're here worshiping the Lord studying the Bible, we're also here because we want you to know him. And so we pray that. We ask that the Lord would do that. So at, at the end of this service, there's two tables on either side. You can go to and there will be people there to pray for you, people there to answer questions, whatever it is that you need, that you might know him. And what Jesus said eternal life is, that you might know him, the only true God. There's only one God, the God of the Bible, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Because through Jesus Christ, God has made the way for your salvation for the forgiveness of your sin, and for eternal life, which is to know God. Not just now, but forever. I was telling someone Saturday again, reminded me again. As believers, we will never know what it's like to not know God. We never will. It's incredible. So we have this relationship with the living God that's ours, secured through what Jesus Christ did for us. So with that, would you stand? I want to read just a few verses beginning in Mark 1.14. So if you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, I'm going to read through verse 20, and then we're going to look at this passage. Mark 1:14. Now after John was put in prison, John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will, be, I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. 
And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Lord, we pray your blessing over your word. We know that your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Every time we read your, this word, every time we hear it, every time we're memorizing it, any time it's coming up in our minds and hearts, that's you speaking to us. And we are very thankful that you do that. You want to do that. You want to speak into our lives your truth, your love, your mercy, your grace, your direction. And, Lord, sometimes there's correction needed. Sometimes there's rebukes even. Lord, correct us. Whatever's needed now, we open our hearts and minds to your word, to your truth, by your Holy Spirit. Guide us, teach us, instruct us, and give to us, Lord, when we leave here, that truly, God, you have spoken to our hearts. Bless this time, the things I prepared, in Jesus' name, amen. You can sit down. So as John mentioned, we had a, a great time at the, at the uh, couple's banquet. Rick and Kathy Steele, who are longtime friends. In fact, we had a couple there when asking, how long have you been married? Check this out. A couple was there that had been married for 40 minutes. Okay? <laughs> and Justin said, you're not going to beat that one. They got married in the back room and came in for their honeymoon here. So this is great. But they also, uh, Rick and Kathy had pictures that they're putting up on the screen. And as I was watching that, I was reflecting again on snapshots of the Savior, the book of Mark particularly. But every picture has a story behind it. Some say a picture is worth a thousand words. I would say to you, every picture welcomes a thousand words when you're trying to understand and know someone. So Rick and Kathy had several pictures of themselves in their early years, their kids, and all that stuff. So the gospel of Mark is like that. There are these fast-moving snapshots that there's a thousand words behind every one of them. We could go on. And as you go into the other Gospels, you will get the more details. You'll get additional things that aren't in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to just stay with our text, hit the things that Mark's hitting, and then maybe for, further, uh, for you, further study, that would be great. So the Gospel of Mark is filled with these snapshots of Jesus. Now, John, when he wrote his Gospel, he put it this way. In John 21, 24, the end of the gospel. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, at which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I say, amen, so much that he's just saying, I could, the, the world couldn't contain the books. I don't, that, that's hyperbole in some way, but really, when you think about what we're talking about as far as Jesus Christ, there's no end to, the, to what we could talk about. John earlier in the same gospel wrote this, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So I would point you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you haven't known the gospel, you don't understand it, go to the gospel of John because he told us that's why he wrote it. That you may believe that he is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. I love Psalm 40. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. God is thinking about us continuously. So I wanted to start with a map this morning, which gives the, the uh, geography 
of when Jesus, well, it's still there today, believe it or not, it didn't go anywhere. But, um, <laughs> but this, this side here is just the general outlay of the, of the different areas that are talked about in the Gospels. And then this is a more detail of the, of the uh, different cities. I'll leave that up there for, if you want to try and take a closer look as I'm just sharing some of these beginning thoughts. But in verse 15, between verse 15 and 16, much time has elapsed as we go to the Gospel of Mark. Repent beneath the gospel. Now, as we go into verse 16, where he's calling these first four disciples, there's a, a gap of about a year plus in Jesus' ministry. So Mark skips over the Lord's Judean ministry. Water to wine, cleansing the temple, Nicodemus, Samaritan woman at the well, and these things. Mark does not go there with us. When we pick it up in Mark 1.14, he begins this, the Galilean ministry in John 1.14, or Mark. It says, Jesus came to Galilee. So the Galilean area is up there, which is where Nazareth is, his birth home. That whole area now, he's in, the, in that northern area of Galilee. He'll be there in, this, in there for about one year and nine months. So quite a long time. When you get to Mark chapter 10, which deals briefly with the Perean ministry, which is on the right side there of the, of the Dead Sea, the Jordan there. And then the Mark chapter... As we looked at last week, in Mark chapters 11 through 16, you get just eight days of the final days of Jesus' uh, life. So the gospel, here's this morning's message. I want to just share why I follow Jesus. The gospel is one mightier. We took it last week. This morning, I want to look in, at this and say, why do I follow Jesus? I want to say three things why I follow Jesus. Number one, he called me. I would say he called me. Very personal. Secondly, he keeps me. And third, he cares. So he called me, meaning he chose me. Me. You can say the same thing if you, if you respond to the gospel. Me, I follow him to be with him. He chose me to be with him. He keeps me. It speaks of his authority, which we'll look at this morning. His authority. I follow him because I need him. You know that song? Need you, how I need you, every hour I need you. That's that song that we sing. And then the third thought is he cares. His compassion. I follow him to be more like him. In how I look at the people in the world. I look at sinners in the world. So he called me, he chose me. I follow Jesus to be with him. Now notice, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, Simon and Andrew... And then later on, James and Zebedee, he calls them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets, they left the father, they left the ship, and they began to follow Jesus. Now, these are four of 12 special men that Jesus chose to follow him as his disciples. Seven of those 12 were fishermen, most likely. Certainly these guys, but then you have in, in John 21, Thomas, Nathaniel, and Philip, all seven of them said, I'm going fishing. They were discouraged about Jesus being crucified. I'm going fishing. To, to be a fisherman, now I must admit, I do not like fishing. I think it's totally boring. How many of you would say amen? <laughs> you don't want to say anything, do you? They, listen, maybe this is why I don't like it. They had to be patient. They had an energetic, hard worker. They had to learn how to work together as fishermen with the nets and all that. Being a fisherman required stamina. 
It required tenacity and it required faith. Mark does not mention an earlier call to these men to follow Jesus. That's in John chapter 1. After that initial call, they went back to fishing. In Mark, he now gets this second call where they become his disciples. And then in Mark chapter 3, which we, the final call, which we'll get in Mark chapter 3, he now sends them out as apostles. So it's encouraging, I hope, to each one of us. Was it a first-time response to when you heard the gospel? Probably not. But God's working and bringing us to these places where we're going to go back here, back there. And then at some point, he calls us to be his disciples. And that necessitates a lot of thinking, a lot of consideration. Because Jesus said, what man who's going to go out and fight an army doesn't first sit down and consider what he has, when he can beat who's double twice his size? What man who's going to build a tower doesn't first sit down and see if he, has the, he can pay the price for following? Jesus gave that in context of being his disciples. So, but at one point, these normal, everyday guys, first of all, had a first encounter. That first encounter, they acknowledged him as Messiah. The second one we hear, have here in Mark, now they're, they're leaving it and going to follow him. These normal, ordinary guys with families, with jobs and responsibilities are now leaving all of it to go follow Jesus. Have you done that? Have you left it all to follow Jesus? In other words, whatever it takes, I'm, after, I'm going after Jesus. Jesus did not go into the religious schools of the day, talk to Gamaliel, and sign up his best students. He called ordinary men to follow him. They became extraordinary men simply because they followed Jesus, not perfectly, but here's the key, decidedly. They made a decision. They had been thinking about it and thinking about it. They knew he was Messiah. He comes and says, follow me. I'm all in. And that's what, it, that's what it means to be a disciple. We're all in for Jesus. At one point, Jesus asked if they would, like the crowds, want to not stop following. Be done with it. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe. Notice that. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a process the Holy Spirit takes. God's, in one sense, God's not pressuring at all. He's not pushing, but he is communicating. And in our hearts and minds, we're having this dialogue to where, are you ready to leave it? You ready to follow me? For these guys, that's what happened. He called them just as they were to make them what he wanted them to become. Same thing for each one of us. He calls us just as we are. Billy Graham, you know the thing. Just as I am without one plea. Just as we were is how God took us. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us as we were. How many would say amen to that? And so, Mark 3.14 says, he appointed the 12 that they might be. How did he do that? How does he change us? How do we become fishers of men? How do we become all that God wants us to be? It's very simple. He called the 12 that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. So I need the Lord. He called me. He chose me. I follow him to be with him. Is that your first love this morning? 
You see, the church at Ephesus in Revelation, love, they were known for their love. And yet by the time Jesus spoke to them in the book of Revelation, they had fallen, left their first love. And that can happen so quickly and so easily and so even undiscerningly. Who is your first love? Who is my first love? Do you want to be with Jesus more than anyone else in the whole world? And spend time with him? I encourage you men, the women, as we're going through these things this year, of, of the spiritual disciplines of spending time with God. Because that's the key. And set, be with them, but then send them out. God does have a purpose and a plan. I love the story of Peter, who failed the Lord miserably. And Jesus calls him by the sea there and says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than the others? Because you boasted, I'll never fail you. And Peter said, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. And that did not derail the purpose that Jesus had for Peter's life. He was calling him, calling him out as far as his heart, but he never changed his purpose for his life. Go and feed my sheep. Tend to my lambs. Feed my sheep. And God is so long-suffering and patient and kind. He's calling us continuously to be with him that he might send us out. That's the key. In Acts chapter 4, 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. You can see it when it's happening. Paul to the Corinthians said, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, and many, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. Just as we are, he takes us and does his work that no flesh should glory in his presence. And I pray that, oh God, get me out of the way. I'll mess it all up. God says, I'm going to take you the mess. I'm going to do, use you for my mission. 1 Corinthians, God is faithful by whom you were called in the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's faithful. He's called us to be with him. I am his work in process. You are his work in process. He called me. That's why I follow him. He chose me. That's why I follow him. And he, I follow him to be with him. Wherever he may lead me. Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship creating Christ Jesus, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. We are his poema is the word. In the Greek. We're his poem. He's writing our, this, this beautiful message through our lives of who he is and his beauty and wonder. We're his workmanship. And Thessalonians, now may the, this, this benediction, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. I say, do it, Lord. Do it. He called me. He chose me. I follow him to be with him. Now, I wanna, this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time. He keeps me. That's why I follow him. He keeps me. He's faithful. In other words, his authority 
in my life and over my life and through my life. I follow him because I need him. I need him. So it says they went to Capernaum, to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So the synagogue came into being when they were taken into captivity in Babylon. The temple destroyed, they're out of the land. So there they started these synagogues. There had to be 10 men, 12 years or older, for a synagogue to be established. They would read the scriptures, pray, and worship God together. Just like what we're doing. Synagogue. Jesus visited and often was invited by the rabbi to speak in the synagogue. At this time, Jesus had just visited his hometown, Nazareth. And there we read in Luke chapter 4, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as he was custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed a book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Wouldn't you love to have been in that synagogue? Then he closed the book. He gave it to the attendant and sat down. Everyone is fixed on him. All the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's powerful. His hometown then, filled with wrath, threw him out of the city, rejected him. When the scribes spoke, they would say, well, thus and thus says this, and they quote the other authorities. But Jesus said, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, in speaking about murder, adultery, divorce, taking oaths, getting, e- uh, getting back, getting even, treating your enemy, final judgment, all those things. He says, you have heard it's been said, but I say to you. With tremendous, he wasn't quoting this and thus rabbi, he said, I say to you. And so the question that comes up for me, you see, he keeps me through the scriptures. And he keeps me in the scriptures. When I realize that God's word is authoritative. In fact, when you go to Jesus' words, do we take those as being the complete, final, sufficient authority in my life? Not just Jesus, but let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Are his words, and you go to the Sermon on the Mount, and you go, wow. What he's dealing with is the heart. In the areas of adultery, the areas of, mur- of divorce, the areas of taking oaths, the area of our, en- of our enemies. Jesus said, you've heard it's been said, dust and dust, but I say to you, and when he starts talking what he says, who gets the... Does he get the nod from our hearts? See, he keeps me his authority. I follow him because I need him. He keeps me through the scriptures. The authoritative word of God. He keeps me in the scriptures. Where I'm reading them and taking them in and saying, okay, God, search me by your word. See what my thoughts are. See what my intents are. And cleanse me by the water of the word. By your Holy Spirit. So are the scriptures complete and sufficient in the final authority in my life, in your life? Do I take them to heart? Because they will keep us. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And on go the scriptures. Now, verse 23, Mark chapter 1. 
Now there was a man in their synagogue who was with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy you? Now this is very, this is fascinating. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. They're smarter than a lot of people that live on the planet. They knew who Jesus, they knew what he came, that he came. He was there in flesh and blood. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? What, 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 what is he doing? What's, where's the authority? How does this work? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Keep that number, verse 28, tucked away a minute. His fame spread. Authority means the power of ability or strength. It's with either possession, something one possesses or exercises. It's a physical and mental power. It's the strength and authority there. It also speaks about the power not only of ability but of rule. Of government, of jurisdiction, authority. They recognize an authority with Jesus Christ unlike any other. This power of ability and strength and rule of government, the jurisdictions, the power of him whose will he commands all others. Listen, I don't need to say this probably in some ways, but then again, I need to hear it with you. We can, must never underestimate the power of the spiritual forces that are opposed to Jesus Christ and opposed to you as a believer. It's Jesus whose authority is, is actively working against the force of darkness. Apart from Jesus, I am, I am no match for even the puniest of demons. And neither are you. In Acts chapter 19... It says, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So there's something going on here that's out of this world, literally. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exorcise you by the, G by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. This is kind of a comical picture, actually. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirits answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Don't mess unless you know Jesus. And it's through him. In Jude chapter 8, again, Jude is filled with these things of the spiritual realm of darkness. But he says, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That is the place we want to keep Jesus between us and whatever forces there are. Otherwise, there's going to be delusion, there's going to be denial, and as Jude's pointing out, there are spiritual daredevils. Oh, I can, like the sons of the, oh yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'm, I'm on. And they have no idea, they're messing around. In fact, I have a pretty strong conviction 
there are things that you shouldn't even get close to that seem so and so okay. They're not okay. The spiritual force of darkness are real. And the devil would like to dress himself up to be a nice, nice guy that we can... No, we stay away from those things. God even said that in the Old Testament in his law. Stay away from the diviners. Stay away from these things because there's a darkness behind them that is no match for us in the flesh. There's no match for us intellectually. There's no match for us without Christ spiritually. So the Lord rebuke you. He keeps me his authority. I follow him because I need him. He keeps me through spiritual warfare. He keeps you in the spiritual battle. It's Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6, many of us have heard this many times. This is going to actually be the theme of the men's breakaway coming up in March. Ephesians, finally my brethren. He says, finally my brethren. He, now he's just talking about marriage, children, jobs, how we treat each other, submission. All He just talk, says, finally my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We need Jesus, our commander. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, what? Against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Now notice that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There's a withstanding. It's a spiritual battle that requires our, our active, being active in it, clothed and strong in the Lord. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. You know, it holds everything. When the truth starts to loosen up, so does all of our armor go, go become useless. Truth. Having, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, what are we, how are we going to walk through this land, these, these landmines of the world? We put on our gospel shoes. Start walking. Protects us, keeps us. Above all, taking the shield of faith with, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the offense. He's the sword of the spirit. That's the word of God. That's our Bibles. And then he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And thus I think that's a whole other study in and of itself. But you, you hear me? His authority, I follow because I need him. He keeps me in the spiritual warfare. He, he keeps in the spiritual battle. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, verse 29, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife, so Peter was married, lay sick of a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them at evening. Now, notice this, his authority in the spiritual and physical realm is what's Mark's just hitting it. But in this thing, Mark lays a great emphasis continuously on the demonic realm. At evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick and various diseases. And notice, cast out many demons and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Complete authority. We need him because we follow him because we need him. 
The spiritual battle is waging. Jesus has authority over the spiritual forces of darkness and any other thing. By the way, the demons and Satan is not an opposite of Jesus or God. He was created by them. He's no match for Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus would not allow them to say a word. Because when the devil starts speaking, he's the author of confusion. He's the author of get the loudest voice going. And Jesus says, you be quiet. You be quiet. And they obeyed him. They were always present in all that was going on. They are always present in all that's going on here. He keeps me his authority. I follow him because I need him. Now in the morning, this is a huge subject also. But in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. Here's what I say. He keeps me through prayer. He keeps me in prayer. Jesus prayed, need we say more. He went in a solitary place. And prayed. Huge factor in spiritual battles. Paul said that in Ephesians. Many occasions where Jesus withdrew and prayed, and many of those times was accompanying or following demonic activity. Or he had to make a, and before deciding who his disciples would be, the apostles would be, he spent all night praying. When the crowds came and they're growing and 5,000 are fed, he leaves that and goes to pray. Satan tempting him, he prayed. In the garden, he prayed. His first resort, his final and strength and fortress was in prayer with his heavenly father. I said, Lord, you got to help me. You got to help me. You see, I was telling you, remember that verse, his fame spread? You start seeing the multitudes. You start seeing what God's doing. All of a sudden, whoa, cool. Jesus had no part of it. He'd leave those things and go pray. He keeps me through prayer. He keeps me in prayer. Is that, see, the man, time management is not the problem. Because time just is. We are never really managing time because time keeps going. We can't stop it. We can't slow it down. And pretending anything otherwise is foolish. Time doesn't fly by. It goes just like it always has. One second, one minute, one hour, one day, one week, one month, just like it always does. Our problem always comes down to self-management. To spirit management. I'll never forget what a pastor told me early on in my walk with the Lord. He said, you'll always do what you want to do. You'll find a way. We'll find time to do what we want to do. The last thing in the world that the devil wants you doing is praying. The first thing on the heart of any believer is, I want to pray. I want to spend time with God. It's a spiritual battle. So Jesus went and he prayed. Samuel Chadwick said this, quote, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. I just take that to heart as I have again just in studying. I follow him because I need him. And Simon and those who are with him search for him. 
When they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. Jesus, don't you? you got crowds wanting to see you. But he said to them, let us go into the next town. He said, that's not why I'm here. To get a big fan base. Get a few followers. Let's go to the next town that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose, he knew the purpose he was there for. Do you? Do I? You see, he keeps me from the destruction that always follows my pride. He keeps you from that. How? He keeps me focused on his purpose for my life. These kind of, the word, prayer, and then this whole area of purpose. I need him. He keeps me from the destruction that always follows my pride. Oh, I got a crowd now. Oh, Jesus turned away and went and prayed. He turned away and went to the next town. Communicate. It says there, and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Verse 40. Now a leper came to him imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This is a pathetic picture, really. This man's existence, leprosy ravaged his body, anguished soul, physically, mentally, socially, and religiously outcast. He kept imploring him. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion. Stretched out his hand and touched him. You did not do that with lepers. Unless you're Jesus. He said, I'm willing. Jesus touched the untouchable. He cured the incurable. He stopped for the lonely and embraced the outcast. Is he cares? His compassion. And Jesus cared and dare I do less. He was never repulsed or nauseated or disgusted. For the vileness, in this case leprosy, but really sin. Sinners. He strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now in Leviticus 13 and 14, I'm going to leave that for your study. But it gives a beautiful picture. Le- Leviticus 13 is a fitting picture of the type of, of that leprosy is a type of sin. Pictures it for us. Where it's, it's imperceptible beginning. It's, le- it's deeper than the skin. It spreads imperceptibly and progressively and out, if not arrested. It destroys the senses. It defiles, it de- disfigures, it isolates. Picture of leprosy, but it's sin. It renders things fit only for the fire. And then in Leviticus 14, as Jesus said, you go show your priest. Leviticus 14 is this picture, beautiful picture of the work of redemption for the leper. Healing, cleansing. It's a picture for us of Jesus' redemption. I'll let you read that. Verse 43, strictly warned him and sent him away at once, said, see that you say no. Now, why would Jesus say don't tell anyone? Because if that was all it is, It's an incomplete testimony of Jesus. 
Jesus worked miracles, but he did not come so that he could be known as a miracle worker. Remember that Herod was wanting Jesus to perform for him. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. He came to bring the light of God's love and salvation to those who are walking in darkness. He came to turn them from the power of Satan to God. He came to preach repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. He came to preach the gospel. And along the way, because of his compassion, his purpose, he demonstrated what God wants to do spiritually in every person's life. Heal and deliver and raise from the dead. Not only would it be incomplete testimony, but it would also, as we see here, it hindered further ministry. People would have to now come to Jesus. Because otherwise he would be going to them. And so we read, however, he went out and began to proclaim it free. So here's this guy gets healed. Now, tell me you would just sit in your room and say, oh, that was cool. <laughs> I'm a leper. I'm a mess. Uh, Jesus, I'm healed. Whoa. Okay, I'll just keep that to myself. So I can, he, he can kind of get it. Okay, I get that. Of course. Can you blame him for doing that? He goes out and tells everyone so that Jesus could no longer openly be in the city. I'll close with this thought. It was a convicting point made by a commentator. Jesus told this man to keep quiet, and yet he told everybody. But Jesus commands us to tell everybody, and we seem to keep silent. May the Lord convict us about that, first of all. But may we, as we're going through the gospel, even this morning, just considering these things. He called me. He chose me. I follow him to be with him. You have the worship team come up. He keeps me. His authority. I follow him because I need him. Because I need him. He keeps me through the scriptures. He keeps me in the scriptures. He keeps me through spiritual warfare. He keeps me in the spiritual battle. He keeps me through prayer. He keeps me in prayer. He keeps me from the destruction that always follows my pride. He keeps me focused on his purpose for my life. And finally, he cares. His compassion. I need him to be more like him. Would you say amen to that as we close? So stand with me and let's worship in song and then I'll come and close the service.